Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the green pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that, Amanda. Good afternoon, y'all. It's uh, it's really good to see you. I realized as we started this series on Ruth that I don't know much about Ruth. And this is kind of odd for me because I grew up in a Christian household and I went to a Christian school. There were literally Bibles in every classroom. Uh, I grew up reading a lot of the Bible. I believe I actually have a, a picture of late elementary Scotty here. Yeah, there he is. So the one on uh, the one on your left 
That's my best friend, Ben, at the time. Um, and if you're wondering, yes, my shirt does not say Sprite, obey your thirst. It says spirit, obey his word. This was my favorite shirt for a very long time. And you cannot convince me that it wasn't cool. I loved this shirt. So I grew up reading a lot of Bible, but I didn't grow up understanding a lot of Ruth. Why was that? It became clear to me as I reflected on that, that I don't think I knew much about Ruth because growing up, I was under the delusion that this was a girl book. Does anyone understand what I mean by that? Like this, this was a girl book. If you didn't want a story about romance or falling in love or marriage, this book didn't have a lot to offer you. I guess essentially the breakdown was girls got Esther and Ruth and Proverbs 31 and guys got the rest of it, I suppose. But I don't buy that. I don't buy that divide for a couple of reasons. Now, first of all, I will say there's nothing wrong with a book being for girls. Uh, something does not have to have value to a man for it to have value. But I don't buy the divide. And two main reasons I don't. One, when you read the book of Ruth in the context of the whole of scripture, you'll see it's actually not saying anything about women, the childless or widows that the Bible doesn't affirm elsewhere. Time and time again, God uses women for noble and holy purposes other than building a family for a man. Secondly, though, probably one of the big reasons that I don't believe that Ruth is just a book about girls or even about gender for that matter, gender is not the only difference between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz have a lot of differences between them that I think the book of Ruth is here to educate us about. And I have here a quote. Uh, this is from uh, Carolyn Custis James. She, as I think Marjorie has mentioned previously, has written not one, but two books on the book of Ruth. Uh, as I've encountered both of them, they're both great. But she outlines the differences between Ruth and Boaz in this way. She says, throughout human history and right up to the present, the differences between Ruth and Boaz are the makings of some of the most horrific violations of human rights. Only consider the explosive combinations, these differences between Ruth and Boaz, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, Jew and Gentile, native born and immigrant, powerful and powerless valued and discarded. Anyone watching what she calls this nitroglycerin mixture, this explosive mixture, would be expecting something terrible to happen when these two people meet. History alone is causing us to suspect that something terrible might happen. But because it doesn't, because Ruth and Boaz are a story of less romance and more honestly collaboration, 
Because they collaborate, I don't think that the Book of Ruth is merely about gender. I think it's about the alliances between the privileged and the marginalized. I think the Book of Ruth is about forming humble alliances between the privileged and the marginalized. How can we use our privilege in a posture of humility? I think it's a question everyone should be asking themselves. I think men and boys should especially be asking that of themselves. We go to the next slide. Yeah, so this guy in the corner. I'm basically going to spend my sermon trying to prove him wrong. I'm going to spend most of my sermon trying to prove late elementary school Scotty wrong about the Book of Ruth. Because I wish he had started asking those questions sooner. But if you take nothing else, take that question. How can I use my privilege in a posture of humility? So the first point I want to make is about the zero-sum game. But before I get into that, I do want to define exactly what I mean by privilege. I don't suppose that Boaz did not have struggles. Right? I don't suppose that Boaz, as a business owner, as someone trying to make it, did not encounter hardship. What I mean by his privilege is there was nothing about who he was that was part of that hardship. His maleness did not set him up for failure. It actually set him up for success. And in that way, he kind of serves as the perfect antonym to Ruth in this society. But the zero-sum game, does, does any, has anyone heard that term before? A zero-sum game is essentially a game in which for one person to win, another one has to lose. If, if you think of a win as positive one and a loss as negative one, the sum will equal zero. We can't have both people win and we can't have both people lose for one to win, the other has to lose. And I think that Boaz in his society, and also we as men in ours, we can often view gender relations as a zero-sum game. We can view power as something that if women gain, men must lose that if a woman becomes more powerful than a man must by definition become weaker. But the book of Ruth doesn't buy that. The book of Ruth actually turns that on its head because time and time again, we see Boaz made better by Ruth acting of her own initiative. When Boaz, a powerful man, encounters Ruth, a powerful woman, he does not feel threatened. Rather, he takes her advice and he's able to make himself and his business better. He's able to better prosper. I think we see this in just everyday relations. Um, but I mean, I definitely think of my relationship with Julie. We've, I've talked up here before, all with Julie's permission, about the differences between herself and myself. 
and how she's good at things that I just am not. And I'm good at things that she's not good at. But it, it doesn't stop just with me benefiting from her doing the work that I don't want to do. When Julie is doing the financial planning in our relationship, I don't get to just like breathe a sigh of relief and not have to do the financial planning. I'm actually made a better financial thinker. I made a better version of myself by Julie being a better version of herself. So that's all I mean by the zero sum game. That's one of my quicker points. I just want you to maybe catch yourself when you're thinking that. When you see someone doing well, do you view it as a threat? When you see someone across a line of gender or race or culture doing well, do you view it as a threat? When someone says the phrase, Black Lives Matter, do you immediately start to wonder, well, doesn't mine? Are you viewing these relations in a zero-sum game? Or are you viewing the relationships in your life in a way that when one rises, we all rise? The big thing I want to hit on today, though, is the fact that Boaz and Ruth, as both as a character and as a book, Ruth teaches us the importance of going beyond the minimum. So some context, right? Naomi knows that Boaz is related to her, Ruth's mother-in-law. As such, the marriage to Ruth is going to be an advantageous move. So Naomi has instructed Ruth, go to him, put on your best clothes, in the middle of the night and just wait and make this request. And we enter that story here. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So let's pause right here. If you didn't know the story, if you didn't know Boaz, what would you think was about to happen? We are supposed to kind of give it a side eye of just like, what? What's going on here? It's an intimate passage, don't get me wrong. And I think it reads that way on purpose. And though it's written vaguely, though it's written intimately, I don't think anything happens this night. But what is Boaz going to do? Keep in mind, why has Ruth come to Boaz in the middle of the night? She's likely come to him because her question, it's a sensitive one. And there's no other opportunity that she would be able to talk to the boss of the field and ask him a question like this in privacy. This is a sensitive question that requires privacy, but when you exist as Ruth does on the margins of society, when you exist as a barren, widow, immigrant woman, privacy sometimes comes at the price of safety. Ruth 
is entering into a dangerous situation. Now, I've read takes on this book that go so far as to praise Boaz for not taking advantage of Ruth, which is just an incredibly low bar for human behavior. If we're praising Boaz for not raping Ruth, that's a very low bar. But culturally, are we really that far removed? Culturally, that is often the bar we set for men and boys. Culturally, we are pleasantly surprised when horrible things don't happen because we accept this as the status quo. Both for Ruth's original readers and for today, this scene should put us at least a little bit on edge. However, I don't think in the end that's the worry that most concerns me in this passage, mostly because of how Boaz has been described already. Boaz, all throughout the book, has been a stand-up guy. Boaz blesses his workers in Yahweh's name. Boaz runs a fair business that also goes out of its way to take care of the poor. Boaz is kind of the Old Testament equivalent of your straight-laced, decent Christian dude. He's uncomplicated. He wants to do the best he can to help others and love God and run his business. Uncomplicated Christian dude. In every account we've seen so far of Boaz, privileged though he is, he's using his privilege in the godliest ways possible. So think about that. Think about the most like straight-laced Christian dude you know. Just someone who really wants to protect a godly reputation, who really wants to do right. That dude's in his room. He's got a WWJD poster above the bed. He wakes up and there's a young woman at the foot of his bed who works for him. I'm not worried in that instance, and maybe I should be, but I'm not as worried that he's going to do something terrible. Boaz does not seem to be a hypocrite. Boaz seems to be just good all the way down. If you've seen Steve Rogers in the Captain America movies, just imagine that guy, just wholesome, good, straight-laced dude. I'm not worried that he's going to do something terrible, knowing Boaz. I'm worried that he's going to send her away rather than hear her out. And I think that's something we do need to call out, even within Christian culture. I think Christian men may be in less danger of treating women as sex objects to be used, but I think we may be more guilty of treating women like temptations to be avoided. I remember growing up, my youth pastor went so far as to hand out sheets of paper to a group I was part of, an inner youth group within the youth group that said explicitly, girls are a distraction. Do not sit with them in church. And I remember one day I found myself sitting in the front row 
straight-laced, good Christian boy. And this young girl named Vanessa is sitting beside me. Not for any reason, except for the reason that I'm there too. Well, for whatever reason, the rules that have been given me and the OCD just like formed this cocktail and I told Vanessa, I'm so sorry, but I, I feel I need to move. And I went to another row. And you know what? Like, I missed out. If on nothing else, I missed out on just being with a girl as a person. Of just sitting with someone as a sister in Christ and learning with her. Because of that fear that had been set up, I missed out. So we're a little less concerned that Boaz is going to do something terrible. Good, good, low bar met. And we might be a little bit more concerned that Boaz is about to view Ruth as a temptress and throw her out on her ear to protect his own reputation. So we'll start this again. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. Just imagine the guy with the WWJD posters. Like, who are you? What is happening? Who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Let's see what he does next. He said, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. Men, take note, Boaz is a class act. Boaz goes beyond the minimum. He grants Ruth what she asked for and more. He sends her home with a meal. He sends her home at an hour which protects her character and his by offering not only safety, but discretion. He goes beyond the minimum. And we need to remember that this isn't a thing that Boaz does in isolation, though, because Boaz wouldn't have even had the opportunity to go beyond the minimum if Ruth hadn't already exceeded the minimum required of her by coming here. And Ruth wouldn't have come to Boaz and exceeded the minimum for her behavior if Naomi hadn't gone beyond the minimum by planning this for Ruth. And Naomi wouldn't have even planned this if Boaz hadn't gone beyond the minimum by allowing Ruth to safely glean, which wouldn't have happened if Ruth hadn't gone beyond the minimum by asking not only to glean on the edges, but safely behind his workers. And this wouldn't have happened if she hadn't gone beyond the minimum 
by pledging to Naomi at the very beginning of this book, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. She says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Do you guys see the power of what can happen when we go beyond what's required? When we go beyond the minimum, when we give each other the benefit of the doubt and do more than base decency, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not a game where we let someone else win so we can lose. It's a game where we let someone else win so that we too may also win. God does some of his best work when we go beyond the minimum. Amen? So one final word that I want to give to late elementary school Scotty is the value of supporting characters. The idea that you do not have to be the main character. Now, those of you who know the Book of Ruth very well or were paying very close attention to the reading of Ruth 3, we'll see that I left out a part of Boaz's response. I want to come back to that now, because it's the reason I suspect Boaz is really doing this for others and not for himself. He says to Ruth here in the middle of the night, probably in hushed tones, right? Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. I know often that when I see, when I see an issue playing out in someone's personal life or playing out on a societal level, I assume that I personally need to do something, that I personally need to start something. But when we find ourselves in places of privilege, when we find ourselves looking down the slope to someone else, sometimes our best, connect, sometimes our best help that we can give is connections we have on the level we are. Sometimes our best asset is connections. I enjoy running social media at my job. Um, I work in an academic resource center. So uh, when university students come in uh, in, need of, in need of aid, in need of help with their assignments, I help pair them up and I help students in need. And I enjoy running the social media for the ARC because if I'm honest, I'm able to get recognition for the work I'm trying to do. And I remember one time I was in the middle of this, uh, like a social media blast that I was really like probably over imagining the effect I was having on the culture of campus. 
But I was really excited about it. And I was making all these posts that I really felt, wow, this is going to change the canvas culture, how we, how we talk about gender, how we talk about race. This is gonna, it's gonna change things. It was an Instagram post for an academic resource center. I don't know what I thought I was doing, but I was pumped. But then in the middle of that, and all that positive feedback loop that social media provides, I got a phone call from a student at this university and she needed help figuring out what her grade was in a certain class. This is a predominantly white institution where the decisions are mostly made by men. She was a black female freshman trying to find her way. And I said, okay, I'll email the professor and I'll CC you to the email. I'll use whatever sway I have. And it really humbled me that I probably did more good in that five second email than I had in the social media post I was spending all day crafting. I think Boaz is similarly able to decentralize himself from the story. He doesn't have to be the savior of this story. He doesn't have to be the main character. In fact, he has connections and knows, you know what, someone else actually might be better at this job. And I think he's able to do that because he has a vision of the kingdom of God that is not Boaz-centric. He realizes that he wouldn't even be at this point having this conversation with Ruth if God were not already working with people other than him. And this is what I mean by the good news in all this. If God is working in unlikely places, it means we don't need to start the kingdom of God from scratch. We do not need to start the work on our own. We can join others in doing God's work. If you walk down to the Delaware and look at the statue of Harriet Tubman, you'll find on one of the edifices around her a quote from Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass said, I would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong. What kind of humility is that? That's not a man out for protecting his reputation. That's not a man who's trying to elevate his own name. That's a man looking at the world as it is and seeing where is the good work happening and how can I join? How can I join where the kingdom of God is already marching forward? And the power of this, guys, the power of believing this means that we begin to see traces and shadows of the kingdom of God everywhere. Believing this means that a food pantry doesn't have to be a Christian food pantry to be doing the work of Christ by feeding the hungry. And we can do the work of Christ by joining what's already there. Believing this means we can join protest marches rather than starting our own brand. Believing this means we can give to funds already in place. Believing this means we listen for God's truth, shouting through the voices 
of those from different races than us, even different religions, different sexualities, different cultures, believing that God works in the margins, meaning there is no surface off of which God's truth will not echo. Amen? There is no surface off of which God's truth will not echo. And that may come through the shouts and the cries of the oppressed, or it may come through a whisper in the dark from a Moabitess girl, widowed, barren, far from home and vulnerable. A caveat here, and I'll wrap up. Wherever it is, in whatever arena it is that you have a measure of privilege over others, if you decide not to go beyond the minimum, if you just make don't be a jerk your goal and you don't go any further, well, you'll probably be okay. <laughs> Being from a place of privilege means you won't die. If Boaz had ignored Ruth from the start of this story, anything that really happened to Boaz, then you would have been okay. And you'll be okay, but boy, you will miss out. If you never go beyond the minimum, if you never look for God in the margins, if you never join in work that is already going forward, I would argue that it's your loss. But God's kingdom is working and the invitation is open. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.